There was one social scientist, Henri Tajval, who, who did a test. He was trying to figure out what's the minimum required to get people to become tribal. And so he puts all these people into a room and he shows them a board full of dots. And he tells them to estimate how many dots are on the board. And then his research assistants, they randomly assign people. It's not based on what they said. They randomly assign people to either the overestimator group or the underestimator group. And then they divide them into different teams. And afterwards, they ask members of both groups, the underestimators and the overestimators, hey, you've got a choice. Either everyone can make $3. So, hey, everybody makes $3 at the end of this. Or, or your team can make $2 and the other team makes $1. And Henry Henri Chajvald, he picked this he picked this experiment for one simple goal. He, he thought that it would not create tribalism. He, he wanted kind of like a minimum viable product so he could build up from it to show what's the stage at which tribalism starts happening. He was wrong because over 70% of the people who were in this study, they said, you know what? I want less money. I don't want the $3. I want the $2 and them to get the $1 because I want to win. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Detox. Today I'm really excited to be joined by a new friend, someone I've just met recently and I actually picked up his book before I ever had a conversation with him. This is our first time connecting together. Patrick Miller is the co-author of Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey, or the Elephant. Regular listeners of my podcast, I'm going to tell you right now, this book is right up your alley. Um, it is so well written. It's really tight, Patrick. It's just like a tightly written book. I, I'd say, and you even had like discussion questions at the end of each chapter. It'd be great for a small group, uh, you know, a book club. And um, <clears throat> I, I, the best thing I can say about it is it's just so neatly, tightly written. Um, you, you hit your points, you give good reflection questions, and then you move on to the next thing. There's like no wasted time. I love it. Really well done. <laughs> But that's really kind. My, my co-author and I are uh, ruthless about our our length in chapters, and <laughs> both of us like efficiency. Everybody's had that experience reading a book where the author repeats themselves several times. Sometimes there's a value to that. You know, you've got to circle in on the issue, or by the end of the book, they're just repeating the whole book over again. This is a short book with short chapters, intentionally written for everyday people in a conversational tone. And and I think anybody who reads it will, I, I hope, at least have fun, even if you disagree with us. Yeah. I just I just put out my own debut book and it's a kind of like a historical exploration of the problem of evil and I'm reading this going oh man I, I probably could have tightened this up um, <laughs> I should have put in some like reflection questions at the end I love that practice but you know there's always hopefully a, a second book so great work hey, uh, highly you, recommend there's it. nothing worse than reading your own book you're like oh this is yeah. the, I, I can't believe I blew this <laughs> yeah 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 so well, well hopefully hopefully people uh, are gathering uh, enough in my meanderings and <laughs> so anyways um, along with that Patrick is also the co-host of a podcast entitled truth over tribe so sim same title as the book you can check out both you're also a pastor too is that is that right Patrick can you That's describe correct. maybe a little bit about like the the context you pastor in yeah so we pastor in college town columbia missouri smack in the middle of the state we live in flyover country it's not a big city but it is where the flagship university is and if you know anything about the state of missouri uh it's a state that now consistently votes republican but being in a college town it leans democratic and that's always created an interesting environment in our church because as an evangelical church you tend to draw conservative people we also have kind of the rural area around the city and so our church has always had a cross-section 
of uh, people from across every political divide. We have Democrats worshiping next to Republicans. We have them uh, in small groups together. They're connecting and they have different views, different views on ideology, different views on policies. And, and the church started 22 years ago. So this has just been part of our DNA. Like th this is who we are. We, we're, we're used to this being the way we are. But what we've come to discover is that that kind of church is becoming increasingly rare, in part because the United States has geographically divided. Right now, 52% of Americans live in what are called landslide counties. So these are areas that go decisively for one presidential candidate or the other uh, by 20 points, right? So 70% of the people in your county are either voting for, in the last election, Trump or Biden. And, and this was not always the case. Back in the early 90s, it was under 30% of, of American counties were, were landslide counties. So chances are, if you're listening to this, you live in a geographical area, area that, that leans one way decisively and we don't live in one of those areas. So we've always had to navigate a political tribalism. We've always had to navigate, how do you build relationships with people that you disagree with? How do you build bridges with those who are across the political divide from you? Yeah, and I think when I look back over the last few years, Patrick, and, and you know, as you've mentioned, the, the divisiveness seems to have intensified. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the factors for maybe why that's happened. But when I look back over, let's say, like the last six years or so, six to eight years where we've seen this intensification happening, um, when I look at leaders, church leaders, pastors, voices that I think have navigated the best, I and this is anecdotal, I don't have any data to back it up. But in my experience, they are people that are in context similar to yours. So I think about, I, I wouldn't, point to like our own church is going like we get perfect gold star for this but you know i i currently serve in a church that is in south minneapolis which is incredibly progressive left-leaning very very left-leaning but um we are in a historic you know it's the oldest free church in the state of minnesota so we have these these sorts of uh, intersections happening. We all know like evangelicals historically have skewed right-leaning on the political spectrum. And yet you have to be friends and neighbors to people that have such a radically different view. And I think what you're describing here is like when you actually get into lived spaces with real human people, the caricatures that we tend to build up when we live in these sort of silos and echo chambers, they they, they erode away. We, get, we begin to see the human behind these sorts of talking points that are really easy. And I think when I hear about your context or other contexts that I've seen around the country, and I go, man, that's a voice that has been sensible, <laughs> that I think has continued to practice the way of Jesus instead of allegiance to any sort of political partisan, whether it be on the right or the left or libertarian or green party, whatever it may be. I, I think of contexts like yours, th that has to be a significant part of your experience is that you're interacting Instead of like with straw men, you're actually interacting with real human people that you're going, oh, I can see how you land at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine going to a small group for the first time and you can't assume that everybody in the room voted for one person. That changes how you communicate. It changes how you carry yourself. It creates a, a certain level of, of uh, caution and sympathy towards those who you, you disagree with. And I'm not saying caution like I don't trust you. I'm saying, hey, I want to make sure I'm not going to say something that offends someone in the room. And because I have that attitude, if I don't want to offend others, it allows me to be open and to ask questions and to hear from you and maybe learn in some ways 
I'm wrong. Or, or at the very least, my assumptions about why you hold X position uh, were wrong. <laughs> you hold exactly. it for very good reasons. And it's hard to hate someone who brings you food when you're sick or when you've got, you know, a new kid at home. You might hate socialists, but gosh, if the socialist shows up with a delicious casserole or whatever it is that you want while you have a baby at home, you, you hate socialists a little bit less by the end of that, you know, and the other way around, you might hate Trump lovers, but when they show up to rake your leaves or help you clean out your yard when your your knee is blown out and you got home from surgery and you can't do anything, guess what? You're going to hate Trump lovers a little bit less. And so that's that's our church community. We, it's hard to hate those people because we don't have caricatures. We have relationship. Yeah. So we obviously live in these really contentious times, as you've mentioned, since the 90s. You know, I'm a 90s kid. I, I was born in 83. Since the 90s, there's, there's a palpable difference, a palpable yeah. Um, a, a very, very strong difference in the, the the polemics. And so in these really contentious times that we're living in that are magnified by factors I want to explore a little bit, it seems like every public word or deed that we offer is processed through the lens of the culture war. Um, but until I read your book, I had not yet considered the possibility with everything that everyone talks about is getting canceled, you know, on both sides of the political aisle, you know, you hear from people that have kind of gone through like, maybe a more progressive deconstruction and they go, well, you know what, you know, it was the evangelicals who were canceling Harry Potter, you know, long before the the Twitter mobs were, were canceling, you know, Richard Dawkins or, you know, all these sorts of other, other people. I have never heard of cinnamon rolls being canceled <laughs> until I read your book. You gotta, you gotta tell this story about the day that cinnamon rolls got canceled. I know. I mean, I would take a cinnamon roll from the devil. I love cinnamon rolls. <laughs> so this is back when COVID hit. So March, April, the pandemic has started up. Like everywhere else, our city was shut down. And there was a local bakery coffee shop called Love Coffee. And it was an amazing organization because they hired people with uh, mental disabilities. And so, as you can imagine, without anybody being able to come in person, the entire business is going under. They don't know how they're going to survive the pandemic, even with money coming in from the government. And so we had this crazy idea. We thought, hey, we can't totally keep them in business, but we can help keep them in business by buying tons of cinnamon rolls. And so we said, hey, we're going to buy them. But then we had to figure out who we're going to send these cinnamon rolls to. And we thought the best people were teachers because at the time, teachers were really on the front lines. They were teaching on Zoom. They didn't know how to teach on Zoom. It was exhausting. It was difficult. And so we said, let's just send them some love in the form of uh, sugary, delightful, cinnamon-flavored uh, little tiny biscuits. You know, we, oh, man, we love cinnamon rolls. So we've sent them off to schools. And every week, we send them off to different schools inside of the school district in our area. And it's going great. I mean, everybody's sending us nice notes. We're saying nice things about them until it doesn't go great because one middle school principal reaches out to the, the place that was selling cinnamon rolls and tells them, hey, uh, we can't accept these because The Crossing is a homophobic, transphobic organization. Uh, so we'll pay for the cinnamon rolls <laughs> and you just take their money and put it somewhere else. And so my co-host, Keith Simon, he, he got that, that email forwarded to him and he thought, what am I supposed to do? You know, do we go to Twitter? You know, we take down that school. We say, hey, they're lying about us. They're calling us transphobic. We aren't transphobic. We aren't homophobic. They're, they're saying terrible things about us in public. Do we go to, you know, central office and, and try to get the principal written up for, for saying nasty things about our church? Or do we do what we think Jesus would have done, which is build a bridge, build a relationship? So Keith reached out to the principal and he said, hey, I, I saw what you wrote. I'd love to buy you lunch and just talk about it. And the principal's a good guy. So he said, hey, yeah, let's grab lunch. Let's talk. And when they get together for lunch over pizza, not some minerals, I mean, maybe the guy just wasn't a dessert guy. You never know why someone turns down a 
cinnamon roll. But they get together and they both discover that neither was as bad as they thought. Uh, the principal listened to the sermon that he thought had offended some of the sensibilities of his staff, and he realized there's nothing transphobic about it. Yes, we, we disagree on some gender issues, but the message of the message was actually we need to love our trans neighbors. And if you're a part of our church, we have all kinds of trans people inside of our church who worship alongside us. And yeah, we think the gospel is going to change you and it's going to affect your view of gender, but you are welcome here and we're going to make a space. And so he realized, oh, this church isn't what I thought you were. On the flip side, my co-host Keith talking to him realized that he wasn't what he thought he was. That principal wasn't a bad guy trying to go at the church. He was trying to defend a really valued staff member who was really offended by our message. That was all he was trying to do, just defend a staff member. And, and Keith said, look, I probably would have done the exact same thing. I would have prioritized my staff over uh, an organization I don't know anything about. And so they were able to walk away and say, hey, our community is going to be better if we're both less tribal, if we both figure out ways to build bridges. And when it comes to something like cinnamon rolls, well, maybe that's a way that we can you know, be friends. And, and maybe next time we send the cinnamon rolls along, they'll ac accept them. You know, So, so it, it was a great example of what happens when you build relationships instead of going at each other on social media, instead of uh, treating the person like a caricature and not a human made in the image of God. All right. So I, I don't want you to take any offense to this, Patrick, or to your co-host, co but I'd say statistically, you guys are weird. That <laughs> response, that response is so um, different than what we, as you've described, might feel like the norm culturally. So I'm really curious, how does in your own your own personal journey, how did this become an issue for you that you're like, okay, I think I'm seeing a better way because the better way isn't obvious to us. The better way is not the norm. It's probably the statistical outlier to go, I'm going to actually reach out and, and sit down across the table with this person that might think the worst of me. And I frankly, because I'm hurt, you know, I'm a human being, I feel that pain of being accused of something. I might look at them as having some sort of ideological agenda, but instead of going head to head, you sit across a table over pizza. That's yeah. not normal, Patrick. <laughs> it just isn't. It's not normal. How did you become so weird? <laughs> well, 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 let me tell you one other way. Our church is a little bit weird. We're, yeah. we're an evangelical church, mm -hmm. but almost all of our pastors became Christians when they were in college. A lot of our staff members became Christians when they were in college, which meant that most of us didn't grow up in an evangelical subculture as kids. It means that we didn't experience a lot of the excesses associated with that. And, and as you pointed out in a recent article, which I absolutely loved, I hope everybody is not just listening to you, but that they go read that, that piece about unplugging from the culture war matrix. One of the things you brought up is how as children, uh, kids are in churches, they, they are brought up into the liturgies of warfare. They're, they're singing songs called battle cry. They're, 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 they're being oriented with a posture towards culture that says we're here to fight and take back America for God. Well, when you got a church full of pastors and leaders, and honestly, just a lot of people in general who've been converted there who didn't grow up in an evangelical subculture, they never learned that stuff. <laughs> and, so, and so what did we learn? Well, here's what I learned. It's that Jesus loved me when I was his enemy. That when I was running the opposite direction, he died on a cross for me. That when I was cursing at him, he spoke words of forgiveness to me. And so if that's how he treats me, how can I go and treat my enemy or someone who I disagree with in any different way? In other words, our orientation towards culture has to be cruciform. It has to be cross-shaped instead of uh, marsiform, right? The God of war or, or yeah. a martial orientation towards culture. And so in some ways, I have a hard time understanding how we got to a point where churches and their liturgies 
look more like the God of war than they do like the God who died on a cross for his enemies. And, and that's what's guided us. I mean, the cinnamon rolls are far from the only time we've been canceled. We, we had another situation where we were working with a film festival. And for that exact same sermon, they, they canceled a, a 12 year long partnership with us because we, we helped with the charity thing that they did. But we had great relationships with the film festival directors. And after they wrote a kind of mean letter about us and put it online, uh, we, we were very intentional. I, we reached out to our staff. I did it. And we said, hey, we need to get online and tell people that we love True False Film Festival. We need to get online and say, hey, let's keep going to the film festival. Let's keep volunteering at the film festival. We're for this film festival. And, and after all that happened, I, I was grabbing lunch with the director of the festival. And he looks at me and he goes, that was a masterclass on grace. How did you do that? And I wanted to say, because I'm a really great person, you know, <laughs> but I told him the truth. I go, I go, you know what? In a lot of ways, there's a part of me that didn't want to do this, but I was taught by Jesus how to do this. He gave me the master class on how to show grace and forgiveness and love to people in the midst of disagreement, even when they're throwing stones at you. And so this has nothing to do with me. This is his way of being in the world. We're just trying to do our own little version of it. It sounds like you're incorporating like a practice that in cognitive science is is often called decentering, and I think people I think about people. I my story is so different, you know, Patrick, from yours. Having grown up, as you read in that article, growing up in a culture that, frankly, I, again, I I don't wish to demonize, you know, the the evangelical subculture that I inhabited. Like I don't do that with my parents. My parents did an excellent job. They were faithful to each other, honest people. They love the Lord. They, I mean, it's just crazy the amount of time we look back on it that my parents spent on giving to us as kids, giving to others in the community. It's absolutely. But when I when I step back and go, okay, we were a local church plugged into a larger subculture at yeah. the time, and those subcultural inputs were, especially pre-internet days, largely beyond. And I'm not giving anybody a, a pass on this. They were largely beyond people's control to compare and contrast. And I think we have like this anachronistic view, and I'm speaking maybe a little bit more to to my tribe that I grew up with, this anachronistic view, like, man, all they needed to do is just compare that there were other options out there than what they were receiving. It's like, well, how? Like, they're going to go to the library, use the Dewey Decimal System and find a different selection <laughs> of theology books? Like, yeah. it's not as easy as we have it now. But when I do look back on um, on those those experiences um, I, I think you're right in that there was this sort of militancy, but when I compare it to those that had not grown up in a churched environment of any kind, whether it's Catholic, whether it's evangelical, what, whatever the case may be, and they, especially if they feel like they've been forgiven of much, it seems like people like yourself carry this disposition that allows them to do again this practice like is called decentering where it's like mm -hmm. instead of seeing myself as going like all right I am free of uh, like I have um I have like you know this sort of like moral invincibility you know that I've I I I come to the place with a clean slate I have my worldview correct and everyone else has it wrong I think people that have been forgiven of much are able to see and be like, no, I was once this, you know, I was once in this place. I didn't have it all together and maybe I don't have it all together now. And that allows you to step back and the decentering aspect of this is stepping back and going, all right, can I actually picture myself in the worldview lens of the person who holds this view that seems so different from me? Can I picture myself behaving 
in this way? Can I step out of that and actually step into someone else's perspective? And it seems like, I wonder, Patrick, if sometimes that's easier for people who didn't grow up with you know, the Christian story and Christian community being the norm because they're able to actually remember those days in which they went, I had a radically different orientation towards God and the world. And so I can understand where they're coming yes. from. Yeah, no, I think it's true. And and to be totally candid, you know, we wrote a book about tribalism and both Keith and I, we are both recovering tribalists. <laughs> so it, it's not even that, it's not just that I remember life before Christ. It's also that I remember a moment actually very early on in my own faith where I was incredibly tribal and I've had to repent of a lot of that. So I don't throw a lot of stones at people who are in this tribal mindset because I know exactly what it's like to be there. I remember 2008, it was uh, the Barack Obama's election. I, he came and he spoke at our university. Back then, Missouri was a swing state. So things are a little bit less clear where we were going to vote. And he came to our university, he spoke, and I came with all my friends. And I was just so excited because he had a message of hope. And I was so dismayed by the by, by the Bush presidency, by their attitude towards warfare, by their attitude towards the home homeless and the poor and things that I thought Jesus really cared about. And so I was excited because Barack Obama was going to change everything for the better. And so I voted for him and he won and I couldn't believe it. And of course, I had to live the next eight years realizing as a young person, I, mean, I was 19 when I voted for him, I had to realize, hey, uh, this didn't pan out the way I thought it was going to. That utopian visions rarely end the way we think that they're going to end. And I watched as our homeless community really fare no better under his presidency than they did under George W. Bush's presidency. In fact, in some ways, they fared worse during his presidency just locally. And so those were the kinds of things that made me realize my tribal mindset of the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong and whatever the Democrats say is correct and whatever the Republicans say are wrong, maybe that's not how I should be orienting my life. I need, I need my values, my ethics, my allegiances to be for Jesus, for the kingdom of God, shaped by the Sermon on the Mount. Those things have to come first. They have to be in the foreground or I am going to be deceived. So again, for, for me, it's not merely that I remember the past. It's also that I can talk to the people who I'm reaching out to with the book about tribalism and say, hey, if you're captured by one side or the other, welcome to the club. It is so hard not to be. I'm not better or smarter. I've just been graced by the kindness of God that he shook me out of it in a very real way at a younger age. Yeah, I, that's great, Patrick. And I, I think as you dress in your book, like, um, the tribalistic framework that we inhabit isn't merely a cultural influence. Mm -hmm. There are other factors at play. Frequently, listeners to my podcast know I, I, I often refer to um, the work of the Dutch social psychologist Hirt Hofsfeedy, and he, in his um, Mind Software book, talks about the three layers of psychological or what we I would also incorporate as spiritual programming that what is it that shapes us into who we are? And those three layers are, are universal human nature. You know, so humans as a species, just like we can talk about how, you know, we can compare dolphins and there's a diverse array of dolphin behavior in the animal kingdom. We'd still say, here are some overlapping features that we say make up dolphins or chimps. Humans have a universal human nature. So we can talk about that from a scientific lens. We could talk about it from a theological lens, right? That we are in Adam. Um, and we also have like our individual personality and genetic predispositions that shape us the way we are. And then the third layer is culture. And I spend a lot of time in, on the intersection of theology and culture. But we might be tempted to think, um, as we talk about like these cultural influences, whether they're our evangelical subculture, whether they're the larger American macro culture and our left-right divide, 
We might be tempted to think that the intense tribalism we're experiencing is primarily the result of something unique in American culture or the West. But as you address in your book, there's good scientific evidence that points to you like tribalism is actually baked into our human nature, isn't it? So can you tell, talk a little bit about maybe some of the points that you and your co-author brought up in your book about, hey, you know, we got pretty strong evidence here. This isn't just like cultural programming. Tribalism runs in our very human nature. And so it's going to take something pretty radical to alter our human nature. What sorts of evidence do we have that this is like, this is kind of baked into us? Yeah, so there's a, a massive amount of research that proves this point, and I could probably spend 30 minutes right now just going through uh, study after study after study making the point. And if you really want an in-depth look at this, I have to recommend Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, where he explores these. Uh, tri He's a social psychologist. He explores why our brains are hardwired to be tribal. Let me just pick a, a few of my my favorites, <laughs> and we can do other ones as well. Uh, th there was one social scientist, Henri Tajval, who who did a test. He was trying to figure out what's the minimum required to get people to become tribal. And so he puts all these people into a room and he shows them a board full of dots and he tells them to estimate how many dots are on the board. And then his research assistants, they randomly assign people. It's not based on what they said. They randomly assign people to either the overestimator group or the underestimator group. And then they divide them into different teams. And afterwards, they ask members of both groups, the underestimators and the overestimators, hey, you've got a choice. Either everyone can make $3 so, hey, everybody makes $3 at the end of this or or your team can make $2 and the other team makes $1. And Henry Henri Tajval, he picked this he picked this experiment for one simple goal. He, he thought that it would not create tribalism. He, he wanted kind of like a minimum viable product so he could build up from it to show what's the stage at which tribalism starts happening. He was wrong because over 70% of the people who were in this study, they said, you know what? I want less money. I don't want the $3. I want the $2 and them to get the $1 because I want to win. It turns out that, and these are adults, it turns out that uh, adults, we, we are hardwired to want to win. It doesn't matter what we're winning over. It might be overestimating and underestimating about dots. It might be whether or not, you know, a hot dog is a sandwich. It might be your favorite sports team. It doesn't matter. We're all, we're all hardwired this way. And again, this, this goes into the way our brain works with things like mirror neurons and um, uh, I'm forgetting the word for the uh, other thing. That's, that's why you got to remember your book. <laughs> um, oxytocin. Oxytocin. Thank you. The yeah. love drug. Uh, it, 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 it runs through our entire brain, how we're wired. So I'll, I'll do one other example. The oxytocin one is, is another one of my favorites. So again, this is called the love drug. Uh, this is what a, a mother experiences when she has a baby and she's rocking the baby or feeding the baby. Oxytocin is the thing released both in her brain and in her brain and her and in her baby's brain it creates a sense of connection it's what you feel when you see your beloved and you're like oh i love you you're amazing it's what you feel like you're missing you know when the relationship runs dry oxytocin is what's released when you have uh, army brigades marching in sync with one another or if you go to a rave and everybody's dancing it, it, it's the thing that connects us and so someone might think hey well, maybe we could end tribalism by just pumping oxytocin into the water then we'll all love each other <laughs> more and so they did a test to see if this would be the case they, they had a control group of, of men and a different group of men where they, they put some oxytocin into their nostrils. And what they discovered was that the oxytocin group was actually more self-sacrificial to their own group. But bizarrely, strangely, tragically, they were more violent. They were more aggressive towards the other group. 
So the group that didn't get oxytocin, yeah, they didn't love each other as much, but they were also less tribal. So it turns out that the very chemical that unites us into tribes, that makes us self-sacrificial, want to give of ourselves, it also drives us to want to attack the other. And so again, this highlights a point that tribalism is hardwired into our circuitry. There is no escaping from this. Mm -hmm. And some of these mechanisms that even, I think this is, we just, I just talked about this in a podcast last week. If we're not, um, I think if we don't have this holistic view of we can, we can learn from general revelation and special revelation. And again, for a lot of people that grew up in charismatic contexts or evangelical contexts that might've dismissed the life of the mind, um, or maybe maybe even at worst described science as some sort of global conspiracy to make you an atheist. Um, it's, it's really refreshing when you actually start to be able to see that when we, we tap into the common grace God gives to all people in general revelation to discern patterns in creation, we can actually learn things that actually help us understand the way God has made the world. We can understand facets of his character and nature. And again, it's not the complete picture, but in this sense, I think it's really fascinating that people um, can blindly see the sort of Jonathan Hive calls or Jonathan Haidt calls it in uh, the Righteous Mind the Hive Switch kick mm -hmm. on, and it's those that endorphin release that kicks on when we actually f experience this intense bonding to a group. So you talked about um, the release of oxytocin when people just simply are marching in um, you know in in the army and you know and going through basic training that uh, that that Haidt calls it muscular bonding. And uh, it actually produces this intense sense that I, as an, as an individual, are caught up in something much bigger than myself. And one of my concerns, Patrick, and I, I, I see this intensification happening among Christians, is the, the way in which like actual Christian liturgical practice has been getting more and more melded with nationalistic patriotic rituals to a point where the connection between the two, there's this deep association that, all right, I'm in this group setting and, you know, it's a 4th of July worship service. Okay. 4th of July worship service. And last week we were singing how great thou art. And this week we're singing onward Christian soldier in the same space with the same people. And it's producing in someone the same sense of euphoria the same sense of loving connection to people in your in-tribe and in your in-group, but without careful reflection on what is like, what is the teleology of this leading to? What is, what's the end goal of this liturgical process? What is it shaping me for? I'm really deeply concerned that people can't tell the difference between the presence of God and the hive switch and not to make one reducible, right? Like I'm not saying like an experience of God is reducible to the hive switch, but we also have to say like we are embodied people and there is no sense in which we have connection with God that doesn't pass through neurons in our brain that doesn't release endorphins, you know? And so if we can't discern between the two, my deep concern, Patrick, and I see this happening. I see these rallies that are happening around the country, these without naming any specific names, these revivals that are happening yeah. that have deep allegiances to let's bring out this political person, typically on the right, to have them bless you know, the meeting and we're going to pray for them. And by the way, they're also running for governor. They're going to eventually run for president. 
that people can't distinguish the difference. And I, the thing I've brought up in this last week's episode was, do you not think that a goose-stepping Nazi in the 1930s didn't feel a sense of euphoria and transcendence as they were marching to hear Hitler give this rallying speech unifying the German people? Did they not feel a sense of connectedness to something bigger? And if that's all we have, my goodness, we're we're in a lot of trouble, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm deeply alarmed by the same things. Well, one of the things that actually is alarming me the most is that just two years ago, uh, the term Christian nationalist was generally speaking in, in evangelical, even right-wing evangelical circles was, was frowned upon. You didn't want to be called a Christian nationalist. You would deny being a Christian nationalist. In fact, we had Greg Locke, who's a very famous uh, one of these people that you're describing. We had him on the podcast because we did a series on the rise of the religious right, and I thought it was only fair that we bring in a kind of contemporary embodiment of that mentality and have a conversation with him. And he didn't want to be called a Christian nationalist. And this is just last year. And now it appears that he's become rather comfortable <laughs> with the term. And, and I'm seeing, again, this is happening across the board. I can look at events like NatCon, the National Conservative Conference. You said you won't name names, but I, 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 I'm, I'm going to name names, so I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do think it really matters because I, I think it's idolatry. And, and, and it's idolatry, in this case, inside the house of God, which I think there is a prophetic call to, to speak truth in those instances. You look at NatCon, you have people like Michael Knowles there who gave a speech, and he, he explicitly called Christian nationalism the tradition, the, the, the tradition framework for America. And, and you have people there who are editors at some of the biggest magazines in the country right now. Uh, World Magazine, First Things. You have people who are seminary presidents who are present there. You have people, it, it's, it's a wild array of people as well as politicians. And the message was actually rather incoherent if you listen through their talks. They, there's actually a lot of disagreement and there were better and worse talks there in general. But the message I think was, was perfectly summarized by my own state senator, Josh Hawley, who uh, gave this actually rather biblical talk. And at the end of it, he just takes this weird about face that reshades everything behind it. And he tells the story of Christians in Alexandria during the reign of Julian the Apostate, who was a Roman emperor who rather famously uh, persecuted and martyred Christians. And these Christians, they're gathered in an in a area where there's a large uh, a statue of an idol because they were everywhere at the time. And this Roman soldier shows up and he's got his axe sharpened. He's ready to go. And so you know what's going to happen. He's going to kill the Christians. The only thing is that's not what he does. He climbs to the top of the idol and chops its head off. And the, the senator was giving this as an example of what our orientation towards culture needs to be right now. We are taking America fundamentally back for God, and it requires a sharp sword. It requires the ability to attack the idols. And again, all of this is, is centered around, like you were saying, this deeply tribal sense of we're Christians, we're a part of America, we're, we're, we're all connecting. What alarms me is, one, that it's idolatry. What also alarms me is, is that it's historically incoherent. Look, the reality is America, this is a guy, Rodney Stark, sociologist, we were at our lowest, our highest levels of secularization at the time of this country's founding. Now, we're, we've reached those levels again today, uh, but it hasn't been since then that we were at the same levels of secularization uh, as at the time of the founding. America was at its peak Christianization level in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Over 70% of Americans were attending church, but it was what we're talking about. It was ceremonial deism. It was a civic religion, so much so that all these church attenders, 45% of them couldn't name the first 
four gospel or the only four gospels not the first four <laughs> you know of a few more <laughs> yeah you heard of the gospel of thomas no they, yeah. they, they, they they couldn't name the four gospels and so it tells you that this was a really thin form of religiosity. It was a form of civic religion. And it was very much so in opposition to uh, the communists in, in Russia, the atheists in Russia. And so you, you see this weird merging, melding of church and state at this time period. It's when we get in God we trust on our dollars. It's when you, you, you've you got uh, the motto. I mean, all of these things are happening at the exact same time. And so when people start saying, hey, we, we want to bring back America, we want to take back America for God, what we're actually saying is we want to go back to the 1950s. And the original culture culture warriors in the kind of 70s, that's what they were doing as well. They, they grew up in this era where the church had a lot of ascendancy and power, and they lost it in the late 60s and early 70s. And they started saying, hey, we need to fight for it again. The difference between us and them is that we are actually under the illusion that that's the way America always was. No, America was not always that way. If you were a black person in 1950, you would not have called this a Christian nation. And that statement by itself should shut down the entire conversation. And if that doesn't, hey, it wasn't before that either. Again, peak secularization levels at the time of the founding. So all of this mythology, all of the mythos, all of the, um, all of the rituals, all of the symbols that we bring into the church about America, and we put together this idea that America is almost this new Israel, and that's why we have to defend Israel from, from the idolaters, like my state senator said. That's not who we are. America is Babylon. <laughs> That's what America is. America is Babylon. Let's build our houses. Let's 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 let's, let's plant gardens. Let's work for its welfare. But it is Babylon. It is not Israel. And when we start treating it like Israel and ourselves like modern day Christian Israelites, that's when we start running into some serious problems. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I I find it interesting how the sorts of resurgence of re religious revivalism or quasi Christian or maybe maybe better put. Um, Christendom revivalism uh, comes when we feel threats from other groups outside of us. So mm -hmm. we talk about the 1950s and 1960s as this time of in intense, um, at least church attendance, high levels of church attendance and participation. And as, as you mentioned, it's like how much of the, of the story of Scripture was actually guiding people's lives. It's difficult to say. But the reason why we had that was because it served our group dynamics when we had an, a group that was threatening us from the outside. Right. So a significant part of that. And I think we need to recognize that people in power saw that as a thing that actually could produce cohesion. And it was effective in defeating a threat that Frank and I'm I'm not rooting for the communists to win the Cold no, War here, Patrick. I'm I'm with you. I, I don't I don't want to live in the USSR. I'm not pro the yeah. USSR, but you're exactly right. It was a tribal dynamic that got opened up. And and part of it was the atheism of the USSR as compared to the theism or the Christianity of the United States. It was part of what it meant to be an American at the time, in opposition to the other tribe. And this is yeah. how tribes work. We always define ourselves in opposition. We often have more of a negative theology than a positive theology. <laughs> Yeah, and so, and so we get like, let's say we get circa 2001, September 11th happens, and then post-September 11th, the new atheists make this interesting move, which is to associate radical Islam as not just being um, a force, one force, like let's ignore U.S. foreign policy or any of that. We'll just say radical Islam was responsible for the September 11th attacks. Oh, and by the way, Islam is a religion. So therefore, all religions, you know, the new atheists made this move post-September 11th to lump all religious, all religious um, affiliation into one category and say, see, religion in, produces this intense sense of tribalism. And in some sense, they weren't wrong. 
in that critique. Like religious bonding is an incredibly powerful, probably the most powerful tool to bond people together. If you can write a story that's about the highest aims for human fulfillment, then you have something that can bring people into a cohesive sense of unity together. But the thing that they prescribed, which was, all right, now we've gotten to the point where we can perhaps have other things that unite us as a group. We can remove the religious rituals. We can remo remove traditional religion. And then we'll move onward into, you know, the sort of unfettered progress towards, towards this sort of John Lennon-esque, you know, utopian vision of, you know, his song Imagine. And I think what we're seeing now is this um, post-New Atheist movement. I'm fascinated, Patrick, this, by this sort of like, you take a Jonathan Haidt, you take a, you know, a Jordan Peterson, you take these these guys that have come from the sciences and academia that are now going, hang on, let's kind of pump the brakes on the new atheist narrative that we can just eliminate religion. And we really think now that religion, in particular, Christianity or this sort of amorphous Judeo-Christian values thing, which is always an interesting category to me, we really see this as necessary, like a pillar that upholds Western civilization. And if we want Western civilization to continue, we better uphold this pillar. And a lot of people are really excited about that, Patrick. I'm actually worried about it because I can easily see this as being Jesus isn't Lord. It's not truth over tribe. It's making Jesus some sort of subservient mascot to some higher vision for the world. And in this case, Western Civ. I love Western Civ. Given the sieves, I would probably take Western sieve <laughs> over many others. But I'm not, I'm not under the delusion that the values of Western civilization, the values of America, if we were to make a Venn diagram, that they all completely overlap with the values of the kingdom of God. So when I see people getting really excited about, well, hey, here's what happened. We stripped out traditionalism and look what, you know, in the pejorative label that people often use is look at the woke religions that have sprung up in its in its place. And we don't want that. And those are a threat to Western values. And I see that in the Greg Locks. I also see it in some of, I don't want to pinpoint this specifically on, on Jordan Peterson, but I, I can see things around those sorts of movements that are like, yeah, we, we need Christianity again. But it's like a Christianity that's still in service to the empire because it's keeping us safe from some other outgroup threat. I don't know what... I, I don't know what you're seeing and if that resonates with you at all. Well, everything you're saying resonates with me. I, I don't think it's uh, by any mistake that the Jordan Petersons are doing well with the, the Daily Wire, NatCon crowd. Uh, because again, they, they, they see, I mean, I mean, even let's just talk about Ben Shapiro. Here, here's a Jewish guy who has incredible appeal to a lot of Christians and they don't really see any divide there. Now, I, I, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm actually part of this is not an anti-Semitic statement. That's actually an interesting ho historical novelty um, that has not been the case throughout much of uh, American history, that there was this sense of unity across the, the like you said, the Judeo-Christian traditions. And again, where I think it comes from is this notion that there's a traditional order that 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 and 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 that a culture 
cannot survive without that traditional order, that the ideas which uh, have shaped our nation cannot survive without that traditional order. Now, there's actually a lot of research that shows that um, the various ideas of Western democracy aren't tightly connected with those various traditions or those traditional orders, so to speak. And so th the belief itself is a little bit problematic. There's a great book that just came out by Paul D. Miller that if anybody wants to read it, <laughs> he explores some of this. I, I, think, I think more fundamentally what, what you're hitting at is, is, is fascinating to me because I'm a weirdo. I, I think that Christianity is at its best when we don't have to make the Constantinian compromise. When we are not in the situations where we're being, you know, the, the ring of power is being held out to us and we have to make the choice whether we take it, you know, Boromir, he wants to take the ring. He wants to use it for good, you know, and that's what we all think we'll use. But of course, the ring turns us into golem. The ring does with us what it will. I want to be like Faramir, the one who says, I refuse to take the, 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 the ring. And, you know, it's his dad later on who critiques him and comes at him and says, Look at what's happening. Our kingdom is in is under war. We could have won this war if we had the ring of power, if you would have just taken it. And he said, why didn't you take it? And his son kind of defends himself. He says, I don't care what you're saying. I know you wouldn't have taken it no matter what. And Faramir ultimately says, yes, I wouldn't have taken it because I can't handle it. I cannot hold the ring of power. And again, that's the Constantinian compromise is taking up the ring of power. And by the way, Jesus faced that exact same challenge during his temptations when the devil says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And he said, no. So if Jesus can't even hold that ring of power, or if he refuses it, I should say, at the very least, how in the world do I think I can hold it? I think that Christians are going to be at our best when we understand that we are living, again, in Babylon, when we understand that we are living as exiles, when we understand that, that we are, we are uh, uh, pilgrims on a, on a journey here and, and that this, uh, the, the order of the world right now is not our ultimate home. Our ultimate home is the kingdom coming to earth. Until then, we live in a different country. We're citizens of heaven. I, I'm not saying some sort of afterlife situation to be right, <laughs> clear. Right. What I'm trying to say is our citizenship, our ultimate allegiance belongs with the king. And you know what? Getting a job in the Oval Office for him, that's a real downgrade. He's got a far better job, a far better kingdom. And when we start thinking about ourselves that way with our allegiances in heaven, with the king, and we start uh, kind of relativizing our allegiances to our earthly nations and to the earthly powers, that's that's what it looks like not to make the Constantinian compromise. That's what it looks like to reject the ring of power and say, why would I need that ring? Jesus is sitting on the throne. I mean, it is ironic to me that a lot of these guys come out of reformed backgrounds. These are supposed to be the people who believe in God's sovereignty. And you know what we don't seem to believe? That he's on the throne, which is why we've got to take the ring of power and win things back over. Look, if America goes to hell in the handbasket, I hate to say it, the nation's rage. <laughs> empires rise, empires fall. It, what do we do? We stay faithful to the king. We're a faithful witness. We're a faithful presence where we're at. And so for all of those reasons, I, again, I'm, I'm with you. I'm deeply concerned. I'm not really motivated by the Jordan Petersons, by that, that entire crowd of atheists who are saying, hey, we need a little bit of religion. It sounds like the old Enlightenment stuff. That's a little bit, you know, the elites don't need it, but those plebs, they all need it. I don't know why anybody wants to be invested in that. I don't want ceremonial deism. I don't want the Constantinian compromise. What I want is people who understand themselves as exiles in Babylon. Yeah, and exactly the point, because we've already done this thing before. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I find so fascinating is, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've done it and it didn't work, right? So that's why we got to this point. So the idea that what we need to do is to just simply go back to Christendom, it's like, no, I mean, if, if you're... If your goal is actually, and I do think, and I, I want to be clear here, um, because some people might hear this and and 
they it signals it pings something on the culture war radar that what we're talking about is a sort of like deconstruction of american values that you know america is like you know uh, there's nothing nothing redemptive in our history or our culture and that's certainly that's certainly i don't hear that from you that's not where i'm coming from at all again like there's so many things I love and I actually do see if we were to take a Venn diagram and we say traditional American values, the values of the kingdom of God, and we were to see if there's overlap, I see there being overlap. The the affirmation of the inherent dignity and worth of the individual, even though we haven't lived that out to its fullest mm-hmm. ideal in our history. You know, things like that. I do think like freedom of speech, the ability to go, I'm not going to use force and coercion to get you to think like that. Because Jesus said, that's how the Gentiles do. The Gentiles lord it over you, but it shouldn't be like like that with you. You should give your life, lay down your life, service. So I think there's, we need to just highlight like, to be, to really talk about the exile mindset properly means that we're not like rooting for Babylon to fail. In fact, we can't because in our welfare, our welfare is bound up in the welfare of Babylon. So we're like transforming from below versus transformation from the top. To me, that seems like the key difference. No, I think it's a key difference. And I, I, was, I was going to go the exact same direction and say, I've noticed that the political hobbyists who are fixated on the federal horse race, what's happening in Washington, are often the most disconnected from what's happening in their local body politic, which, by the way, is the opposite of Burkean conservatism. It's, it's the opposite of, of what we uh, you know supposedly defend and are for. We should be deeply invested in bringing shalom, in particular, to the places that are closest to us. We can't not telescope our concern to Washington and think that we've done our duties. We need to focus on our local schools, our local school districts. We need to focus on the refugees who live in our city, on the homeless who are in our city, on the single moms who are in our city. We need to focus on bringing racial healing in our cities if that's part of your city's history like it is in my own. These are the kinds of things that Christians should be really, we should start businesses. We should be for the arts. We, we should work for Shalom where we're at. And, and you know, it's actually funny because like, I look at the story of Daniel and his friends, you know, they obviously had a lot of influence in the Babylonian court, but if you pay really careful attention, their influence is actually pretty local. I mean, they're, they're called provincial leaders. So they're, they're not, you know, <laughs> national, international leaders of the empire. Um, but one of the fascinating things is, is, is we're, we're, I think we are going through a decline in culture and cultures go through these things. It's just something you see rise, you see a fall. Um, when Daniel experiences both the rise, the rapid rise and the rapid fall of the Babylonian empire towards the end, when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar's son, his son is asking him to, to, to interpret this bizarre message written on a wall and say, what does this mean? He says, if you can tell me, I'll give you, you'll be the third most powerful person in Babylon and I'll give you, you know, purple robes. And Daniel's response to him, it actually made me laugh when I read it. He goes, you can give that to someone else, but I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> right. I'll just be faithful. Right. I'll just be faithful. Yes, he's just faithful, you know, and he, yeah. he says, he says, I don't need the power. It, I, I, I started wondering, like, why did he say that? Because in other instances, he kind of accepts it. And so I'm wondering why here. And I wondered if part of it was because he was wise enough to perceive that the Persian army was about to conquer, that the end of the Babylonian era had come upon him. So first of all, being the third in power might be a bad place to be if there's a foreign army who's coming in. Uh, but second of all, he, he understood that, that, that this kingdom, it doesn't last forever, which goes back to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's own dream of the statue with the different kinds of metal and saying, look, each kingdom is followed by another (laughs) kingdom. And I think if we had that kind of attitude of saying, look, America is not going to last forever. I love my country. Uh, You know, I I, I, like you just said, when, when you look at the values of the kingdom, 
it's I'm not saying that America is worse than than other countries. In fact, America is a lot better, to be frank, than a lot of other countries out there. This is a country that I would choose to live in if you could give me a lot of choices. However, I also know that it won't last forever. This tree will be chopped down. This is not a eternal city. There's only one eternal city. And I think that's what Daniel got when he rejected the offer. He said, look, I don't I don't need that. I, I, I can be faithful where I'm at. I'll do what good I can and I'll be faithful to God come what may. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there is, again, I want to talk about both of these sides of this this narrative that happen in our culture war because there is that other side that goes, here's the deal, unless we can build a civilization that's pure from the studs up, you know, we're, we're going to need to continually tear it down. And these sorts of weird, like, not based in historical reality notions that, I mean, even, and I want to tread carefully on this, that even that we had, you know, indigenous peoples in this in this land before Europeans came that were somehow like pure saints. It's like, no, you will not find any civilization that hasn't used the way of Cain to build their city. Yes. You can't find it, whether it's, you know, local hunter gatherer tribes all the way scaled up to Rome, to Babylon. There's none, there's not, there's none without sin. And so this idea that on the one side, the alternative is like, until we get to some sort of like, pure till we get to the utopian vision we need to keep tearing things down it's like no that that's i don't hear that in what you're saying either i hear what in you're saying and hopefully people hear in what i'm saying is we're not talking about like you have to tear things down to the studs but what we are saying is exactly the title of your book right that you cannot make truth subordinate to the tribal aims otherwise what you have, and I think you talked about this, I want to pick on this idea a little bit. When truth becomes subordinate to tribal aims, all you're left with is coercion. Mm-hmm. So can you explain that? I thought that was such a crucial point that you and your co-author brought up. Like when you have as a cultural narrative, this idea, you know, and we can point to all sorts of things, whether it's we want to make a boogeyman, a postmodernism, whatever the case may be. We do have this sense that's more recent that, you know, we don't have transcultural truths. All we have are maybe local truths that bring communities into cohesion together. And your truth in your community can't transfer over to the other. And if that's the case, we have nothing to aim towards that could ever confront our biases. Yeah. And so what we're left with, as you describe, and I'd love you to flesh out a little bit more, is like all we're left with is coercion. We're left with coercion, fear tactics, um, preying upon anxieties to continue to get group cohesion, even if that group cohesion isn't oriented towards the true good or beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I've experienced this, frankly, on both sides of the aisle. I remember having a conversation when I was doing college ministry with a, a college student, and I was trying to talk to her about capital T truth because I realized if we were going to build a bridge between us, there was going to have to be some things that we agree upon. And and actually, you know, this is really fascinating. Polarization is nothing new. If you go back to the election of, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, these guys wrote the most horrific things Horrible. about each other. I mean, it Horrible. makes the day stuff look kind of nice, if I'm being yeah. honest. But there was one thing they agreed on. They were arguing over the truth capital T truth. They believe there was such a thing as capital T truth. And these days, it it seems like we're having a harder and harder time finding capital T truth. It seems like we are all moving into these lowercase t truths, these echo chambers where you have to be a part of the tribe to have a voice. And the minute you disagree with that lowercase t truth, 
you're kicked out, which again, takes me to this conversation I had with this um, college student. And I, I, I was trying to find a basic truth that we could agree upon. And so, you know, I was, I was, I was shooting low. I was like, okay, let, let's start here. Two plus two equals four. And I, you know, she's a college student, so she's probably just trying to have fun, but she goes, no, it doesn't. I go, what do you mean two plus two doesn't equal four? And she goes, well, I want you to imagine for a second, company A has two factories. In factory one, it has one machine. And in factory two, it has 1.5 machines. She says in factory B, it also has two factories and the exact same thing. One machine in factory one and 1.5 machines in factory two. She says, now let's say those two companies this is, they, they merge together, right? So, so they had two factories in each company. So she says, put them together. How many factories do you have? And I go, four. And she goes, yes, but how many machines do you have? And I go, five. And she goes, okay, two plus two equals five. I proved it to you. And I said, no, 1.5 plus one <laughs> equals 2.5 machines in company A and the exact same thing together. So 2.5 plus 2.5 equals five. And, and she refused to do that. She ends up sending me a paper by a thinker named uh, Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez, who uh, says that we need to stop che- tre- teaching children what she calls white stream math. So this is math that she thinks comes out of European uh, thinking, but she believes it trains people in white forms of thinking. Instead, we need to train people in uh, bird songs was one form of math she encouraged. And I, I know some of us like you know, almost want to laugh at it. It sounds ridiculous. Others was less ridiculous. It was like traditional forms of math and uh, indigenous cultures in other places. And while I don't necessarily have a problem with talking about different forms of math, the problem is you can't build bridges with those forms of math. You cannot code computers. You can't do a lot of the things that math does. And perhaps most importantly, her history is wrong. Look, our modern math does not come out of European culture. It actually comes out of Neo-Babylonian and Arabic cultures, which was then subsumed by European culture uh, far, far, far down the line. Now, here's the big picture. Her point is, even on math, there is no such thing as capital T truth. And if we can't agree that two plus two equals four, how, how, do, you, how do you win an argument? It turns into an arm wrestling match. It becomes who has the most power. Whoever's in the majority, now they're in power. And I'm grateful I live in a country that has historically emphasized majority rule with minority rights. Um, But the minute we lose that second half (laughs) of minority rights, we're in a really dark place. And that's where coercion really comes into play. You look at Mao Zedong when he uh, led the communist revolution in China. He was a poet. I mean, he was an artist. He had this beautiful utopian vision. He said that he would write upon the blank slate of the Chinese heart. And that writing looked like 70 million people being murdered. That's where if if you lose the rights of the minority and if all you have is the coercion of the majority and all you have is the truth of the tribe, then you can justify murdering 70 million people because it's for the greater good, because this is what the tribe wants. And what's wild is that actually this is how human history has worked for most of human history until the Christian revolution, until that wild day comes along where Jesus teaching the Hebrew scriptures tells people that humans are made in the image of, of God. That's why we don't do this anymore. That's why we have minority rights because we believe in dignity. That's why that's why we believe in persuasion because Jesus persuaded people. He didn't coerce. When given the option, like you say, he said that's how the Gentiles do it. I don't, I don't, I don't coerce people. I persuade them with the truth. And so again, we're, we're in a really challenging place right now because we're seeing this uh, erosion of truth on both sides. You see it with the QAnon conspiracy theories on the right, the vaccine conspiracies on the right, all kinds of things on the right as well. I just emphasize the left because I was going after the right for most. This podcast. Uh, <laughs> so, so again, h- how do you build bridges if you cannot agree on fundamental truth on the on the idea that there's a shared reality out there? And, and I th- 
I, I, I don't quite know what to do with our cultural moment because it is seeming increasingly difficult. And I think that's why both sides have become so vitriolic because they've realized the person who wins this is going to be the one with the most muscles. So mm. let's get strong and let's fight. Yeah, that tribalism and coercion seems to take as one of its first casualties, nuance. Mm. You know, So to be able to nuance and sort through those those facets of our culture that again as you bring up you know let's take math for example we've inherited from prior cultures uh, i don't need to say well i i don't believe that islam is the best and truest guiding story therefore any sort of uh you know islamic scholastic that gave us <laughs> wonderful insights into math or medicine i need to throw yeah. out that I gave us that. our Western heritage, by the way, right? right? Like, wh where did we get Aristotle and Plato in the medieval right. era? Yeah, it, it came from those. And as a result, Thomas Aquinas. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's no Thomas Aquinas without the re revival of Aristotelian thought that we also get from the Muslims, you know? Yep. And I, I bring that up to go, all right, so again, getting to this point of having nuanced, um, nuanced engagement where we are able to celebrate things yeah. in our culture in your unique heritage that are in harmony with capital T truth. So we can go and be like, man, I'm actually really glad for Western math and medicine. Mm -hmm. I am. Now, are there things that Western medicine could potentially learn from? It certainly is. Like, And I think we're seeing some of that over the last couple of decades with people being more attentive to diet, exercise, things that maybe the previous decades before maybe neglected a little bit in, yeah, in, more in terms of just a regiment of um you know uh, medicine you know um so I'm, I'm i'm thankful for that so i don't think i need to go well because of these sorts of western atrocities therefore i have to assume that let's say indigenous forms of math are going to be superior i don't need to do that and i also don't need to discount and be like well because let's say uh you know whatever whatever culture that your friend was bringing up says hey you know we should incorporate their math if that doesn't have coherence to reality, it doesn't mean that they might have other facets that don't have that sort of overlap in the Venn diagram with the kingdom of God. If, though, we can't acknowledge the lordship of capital T truth, which, again, as Christians, we profess and believe is in the person of Jesus Christ, I think what we end up ha have happening, and I don't want to reduce the cross to simply like an archetypal pattern. I don't, I don't want to do that, but I think we can see even in the cross this sort of archetypal pattern of human nature wanting to subordinate the truth to convenient whims of the tribe out of fear that maybe the lordship of truth might destabilize the established order of the tribe and being so willing to preserve that power that they'd be willing to kill the truth in front of them to me, this is at least one layer of seeing and looking at the ministry, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus to say, this was truth embodied, came to a people that that did not did not accept him, did not reject it, and, and they rejected him and were so threatened by the destabilization for whether you're you were a first century Jew, whether you're a first century Roman and Hellenistic culture. Jesus's lordship is a threat to both of those in some sense. And um, I just see this pattern playing out over and over. And if we can't affirm that, I'm, I'm deeply concerned that we are going to continue to crucify the truth when it presents itself to us in service. And the end result of that, I think Jesus warned about, is an eventual 
movement away from the truth, movement away from the good leads to increasing disorder. And what you end up having instead of like the destabilization of your culture is you end up veering all the way towards chaos. And we, we see that within a generation of Jesus' death and resurrection, where the people of Jesus's tribe, of his local tribe, rejected his way, went to war against the Romans, rejected the way of peace, rejected the way of exile. And what happened was they got annihilated. Yes. And I think, I, I think we need to retain some sense of talking about judgment in such a way that, um, mm. that helps us see the, the, the cost of not seeing truth over tribe. I, I, the, the the judgment aspect is obviously difficult to talk about, but as you said it, it, it hit a note with me. If what happens in our lifetime is that these uh, two tribes on either side of the political spectrum exhaust themselves, expending every bit of ammunition they have destroying one another, that will be God's judgment on them. It will be. Uh, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Jesus had plenty of contemporaries who believed that the answer was to overthrow Rome and the results were an absolute tragedy for those individuals. You know, I, I think more fundamentally than that, in a world where there is no capital T truth, I think you're right. Jesus will be crucified over and over again. Uh, but I hate to break it to the church. That's us. We are the ones who are going to get crucified over and over and over again. And Paul called that a joy. Mm. To be crucified with Christ is a joy. And so that's why with the cinnamon rolls, that's why with the film festival, those are not crucifixions. Like I don't want to overdo persecution, but they were they were small, small lowercase p persecutions. And 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 we had to do that in faithfulness to Jesus. I think that what the world needs right now is is probably not an apologetic that's heavy on truth and here's the rational reasons for why I believe. I mean, I, I value that stuff. It's good. What what the world needs is a church that's good, beautiful, and true. If we can show radical kindness, if we can show radical generosity, you know, one thing our church says is, says if our church left, would our city notice? Yep. Would it make a noticeable difference? And if yep. the answer to that question is is no then I think something's desperately wrong because the way that you're going to convince people of the beauty of Jesus is by having a good, beautiful, and true church that gives radically, sacrifices its time so that when people come after you and attack you for all the wrong things that they think you've done or all the wrong things that you think they believe, there's a whole different subset of people that go, well, when I came in and I was naked and I was hungry and I was hurting, those were the people who showed up. So I don't know what you think about XYZ topics. I don't really care because they loved me. And when they loved me, it showed me the love of Jesus. So you can crucify the church all you want. The, the blood of the church is is the seed. That's how we grow. And so again, that's why I won't go into the culture war. I can't get the gun out. Jesus told Peter, enough of this. <laughs> when he got his sword out, enough of this. That's exactly right. We have to walk in the way of exile. And if that means that we hurt, so be it. Jesus is with you on that cross. Yeah. And if our goal even, as it was, I think, in the 80s and 90s, well-intentioned people that were concerned about uh, maybe a Maybe an increasing sense, and I think there was some validity to this, that that sort of Venn diagram that I keep referring to about the, the values of America and the values of the kingdom of God, that they felt it kind of maybe Separate. even separating even more, where there was less overlap. And so their concern, as I think we have, I don't know if you have if children or not, Patrick, but you know, for our kids, we, we experience that in, an, in its own unique way in our generation, that there is... In certain domains, we see the separation of values that we got. I don't think this is in keeping yeah. with the way of Jesus. 
And I think when we look back and maybe the 80s and 90s, one of the things we're trying to navigate now as parents is to go, okay, we understand what they were feeling, that sense of Babylon is coming. And if we don't do something, we are going to be assimilated into Babylon. That fear of assimilation, I think, pushed a strategy, which was, okay, now if we're going to resist Babylon, the best way to do it is through a culture war. And I think anybody, you talk to just about anybody our age, and you look back on it, and you can look at any of these statistics, the culture war, even if the goal was to preserve Christian youth to grow into adulthood that would retain some semblance of the Christian story and Christian community, that objective failed. Yeah, It, it failed. And we, I know we see this all the time. Record lows in Christian participation among millennials and younger. I, the strategy didn't work. So on two fronts, we can, I think, address this issue. On the one front of like, is this actually in keeping with the way of Jesus? That should be satisfactory enough. Mm-hmm. But even if you were like, I'm just really pragmatically concerned, I can't figure out if this is the way of Jesus or not, and you were to just look at the results of the experiment of the 80s and 90s, I think you'd say it was a failure to engage with Babylon in that way. Patrick, we had a little interruption there, a tech interruption, but we were talking about we we're talking about how the the culture war has failed on multiple fronts, not just in failed in I think misunderstanding the the actual vocational call, the biblical vocational call of Christians. It also failed in its ability to actually do what it was promising to do, which was to keep one generation of Christians from being culturally assimilated by Babylon. And I think you were talking about how maybe you see it failing on another front as well. Yeah, well, I, I think it goes back to everything that we've been discussing, which is um, a a syncretization of Christianity with a particular kind of Americanism. And in particular, the, the sexual mores of the 1950s uh, tend to be at the heart of that. And as I talk to a lot of Christians who are concerned about the culture wars, what they're really most deeply concerned about, at least right now, really comes down to sex, sexuality, and gender. That that's the fundamental question. And and I'm not going to minimize that, by the way. I'm a parent of two young children. I care about my kids' sex lives. I care about my kids' sexuality. I care about their gender. Uh, and that's one reason why me personally I actually send my kids to a Christian school, because when they're at a formative age, I think that having alternative educational institutions is actually a way of loving your neighbors because they can send their kids to those institutions. And it's a way of preserving uh, your, your, your child's, what would be the word for it, uh, their, 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 their credulity, their ability yes. to believe. That's something that needs to be fostered and discipled at a young age. Now, I'm not saying sending your kids to public school is a wrong thing. I do think whatever you do, you have to have some sort of formative education out outside of the mainstream educational system. All that to say, those are important issues, uh, but they're not the only issues that Christians should care about. Again, I I brought this up earlier. Part of the 1950s wasn't just the sexual hierarchy of of the 1950s that a lot of people want to go back to. 
there was a racial hierarchy in the 1950s. And I don't want to go back to that. And in fact, the New Testament is profoundly, profoundly concerned with how we deal with the question of interracial relationships and interethnic relationships. Uh, people estimate that somewhere around one third to one half of Paul's letters are dedicated to the topic of bringing Jews and Gentiles together to worship. And the reason why was because this was the way that the church would show the watching world that Jesus really was king. I think that we are in the exact same moment today. Yes, we should care about sex. Yes, we should care about sexuality, but we can't get into a culture war mindset because our priority is to witness to the power of the kingdom of God, to the powers of darkness. And the way we do that is by having interracial, interracial, multi-ethnic, multi-generational congregations that are worshiping alongside one another. It's by having congregations where Republicans and Democrats can worship alongside one another because these things can't happen anywhere else. And when they do happen, it proves that the powers which want to divide us into our little tribal echo chambers, they aren't in charge here. Jesus, he's in charge here. And that's why we do things differently. That's our calling. That's our vocation. That's the priority. Not winning an election, not getting someone into the Oval Office. That's what we have to keep right at the core, not only of our identity, but of our mission and our purpose in the world. And I wholeheartedly agree, Patrick. I guess maybe people listening right now, if we can address maybe one concern, one concern that maybe comes enters into my mind as I discuss this with you and reflect on it going through your book and many years of reflection. If it is so baked into our human nature, this these intense tribalistic bonds, if we are inhabiting a culture that is so um, regularly, ritualistically programming us for intense culture war tribalization, what hope is there that we can actually overcome those forces and be able to even perceive the truth? And I know it'd be really easy for us to do, you know, an easy like altar call answer and just, just Jesus. But I hopefully you can give us maybe a little bit more precision as to how we come in harmony with the way of Jesus, how we actually enter into ontological union with Jesus in such a way that his spirit is transforming us. Like we have to have some way if it's baked into our human nature. To me, this seems like we have to have a mechanism for the literal, I mean, like quite literal transformation of human nature. And we have to do something about not just our human nature, but the cultural inputs that we're consuming all the time. Is there any hope? <laughs> Give us some hope here, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I actually do feel a tremendous amount of hope right now, and it's only because I do believe that Jesus is sitting on the throne. I am sure that Daniel and his friends who were in exile in Babylon had these exact same conversations, and they probably had the exact same uh, divisions, even in their own little tribes. Of Some people wanted to be at war with Babylon. Some people wanted to be like Babylon. Other people wanted to be a faithful presence in Babylon. I don't, they, they had to be having all these exact... In fact, we know they were, right? Because that's why Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and says, hey, you're not coming back, so stop acting like this isn't going to be your home. You know, So clearly there's debates that are happening. And so I think having these kinds of conversations are incredibly helpful. But I think on a more formational level, I, I would say two things, which is, first of all, tribalism is baked into us. And, and Jesus, he is the leader of a tribe. So, so no one gets to escape. But his tribe is so radically different than every other tribe, I hesitate to call it a tribe because it's the only tribe that I know of in human history who, who believes that its job, its role, its responsibility is to love people outside the tribe. 
Remember what I said about those, uh, you know, the 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 mirror neurons and the oxytocin yes. how they drive us to become uh, antagonistic towards outsiders. Yeah. Jesus flips the script and makes one of our central values: love your enemies. That is a radical statement. It makes no sense on a national level or on a tribal level. He's one of the first people that I would say is the first person to really teach us in a profound and coherent way. So this is a tribe that loves outsiders, but even more importantly, it's a tribe that welcomes all people. doesn't mean that you say the same when you're in this tribe, but there is no one who is excluded from this tribe. It doesn't matter if you are black or white or Asian or Latino. It doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, transgender, queer. It doesn't matter if you're straight. It doesn't matter if you're gay. It doesn't matter if you're non-binary, if you're bisexual. All people are welcomed into this particular tribe. He welcomes all. And so again, it's very weird because most tribes are about exclusion. Yes. (laughs) There are some defining markers that say you cannot be a part of this tribe unless you look like this, unless you feel like this, unless you have these kinds of sexual desires, Jesus welcomes all people. Now, again, I want to be clear. Jesus doesn't leave any of us the same. He doesn't leave straight people the same. He doesn't leave gay people the same. We all get changed as a part of this tribe. Um, But becoming a part of that tribe is incredibly important because I think that is the context, the embodied communal context where he begins to reshape us and reform us. I think in a tribal world, some practices that I think a lot of churches are great at, but we have to continually reclaim are practices of radical generosity, practices of radical kindness, practices of radical listening <laughs> and admitting when we're wrong. These are, these are just a few uh, areas that I think we have to embrace in our lives if we're going to resist our tribal moment. And I can talk about any any one of those, but if any of those is lacking, it is incredibly difficult not to get sucked into one of the other, you know, the Christian progressive tribe or the Christian nationalist tribe. That's great because I actually hear some 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 hope in this. This is what you're trying to communicate. The hope that I hear in this is actually not that we are able to somehow over the shut off our human nature. Mm-hmm. I actually hear it somewhat akin to what I would say is actually a more biblically healthy picture of human sexuality is to not do what was maybe the case in some like hyper purity culture, which is to actually deny that you have sexual appetites at all as part mm-hmm. of your human nature, to actually fill you with shame, to actually fill you with a sense of you having this in your nature in and of itself is something wrong, but there is a proper telos and function to the way that human nature can be aimed and applied. So as an example of this, like I'm biologically men, especially when we compare men and women, men, given our physiology, given that we have millions of sperm and women only have one egg at a time, that we are biologically more inclined to promiscuity. We are biologically more inclined as a male species to have appetites for having more than one woman. Now, that's not the case. It's not universally true, but statistically, that would be the norm for men. I think for men, as in a parallel, men have felt an intense sense of shame in any sort of sexual desire whatsoever, oftentimes in Christian community, as if you have to shut that off. And instead, I think, like the way of Jesus says, okay, if you are called to marriage, there is a place for this to have healthy expression, and it looks like this. I see something akin to what you're saying with our tribalistic inclinations, that we we won't be able to get beyond that entirely. It's not wrong to feel a sense of wanting to be connected to a group, identifying with the group, but it's the behavior of that group 
as it relates to other groups. It's the telos of that group function. So if we make the group identity markers, markers like you have to look like us, uh, you know, you have to, if we make it about cultural supremacy, which I think oftentimes we're, we're hearing a lot about supremacy, white supremacy. And to me, I think the best framework for thinking about this isn't necessarily even race, but to think of cultural supremacy as being yeah. the antithesis of the gospel. If we can take that and channel it towards, here's our group identity markers. What mm -hmm. we're going to be marked for as a tribe is how radically generous we are. How like how people are going to know us, like you've talked about your own church community. We're not going to be the best church in our city. We're going to be the best church for our city. Mm. If I, if our family packs up and leaves our house, if we move across the country, will the people in our neighborhood be sad about that or will they rejoice? Yeah. You know, I think those are good markers to be like, these are my tribal identity markers. <laughs> and I don't stop being tribal. It's like, I found the appropriate function for that impulse. And it looks like a community that we would call the people of God. Yes, absolutely. There is an astronaut, Jeff Ashby, who described his experience orbiting the earth for the first time. And he noticed that the real globe lacked something all of his uh, other globes had, which was national boundary lines. You know, if you look at a normal globe, you can see here's Nigeria, here's Tanzania, here's America, here's Mexico. You, you see all the different countries out there. And he noticed as the world was spinning below him, there were no lines. And he realized that what held humans in common, uh, we share an atmosphere, we share a world, we share, we share, we share something far more fundamental than what divides us, those nations, those lines that we draw. And so he kind of has this amazing uh, global awakening, if you will. And I find that story fascinating because it actually really maps onto the ancient vision of Isaiah when he imagines a day that the nations will come to the heights of Jerusalem and they'll, 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 they'll take hammers and they'll turn their spears into plowshares or the vision of the nations coming in their ships to Jerusalem, it, where, where it's not that you've left your nationality or your culture behind. Instead, you're bringing the glories of it into a singular family, yeah. the family yes. of God. And, and so that's where the tribal stuff is actually really beautiful. I think in the Garden of Eden, that oxytocin, those mirror neurons, they were designed for a species that wasn't riven across tribal lines. If, if we if we didn't create boundary markers, what could be better than having a chemical in your brain <laughs> that makes you love insiders? If you were never supposed to have outsiders, what could possibly be better than that? Nothing could be better. I mean, that would be a huge gift from God. The problem is that we live east of Eden. And east of Eden, that same chemical has the opposite effect, an effect that it was never maybe intended in some sense to have. And that's part of living with the problem of evil. It's part of living in a broken world is that we have broken tribalism now, not the good kind of tribalism. And so, again, that's, that's where I have hope. I mean, that's the ultimate vision of Christianity in Revelation is all of the nations coming together, worshiping in every Every tongue, bringing the glories of their culture to King Jesus and saying, we made this for you. We made this yes. for your honor and glory. And we are all different. And yet we are all one with one another because we are all one in you, our husband, and we are your bride. That is the image. That is the hope of healthy tribalism is to be the bride together and to yes. be one in Jesus. That That's something I long for. It's something, something we all want. And it's something that we will all experience in Jesus one day. Oh man, that, amen to that. Because that, I see that's the, the picture we see in the Old Testament prophets is the picture of 
New Jerusalem that we see in Revelation. I just love the picture that you actually have the unique kings of the nations bringing their gifts into the city of God. And so this eliminates any sort of sense that when 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 the eschaton comes, when God has has completed his redemptive processes in the world, that we're going to have some sort of like cultural hierarchy where there's one culture that rules over them all. And instead, I think we'll be able to say, in each culture, in each nation, the nations are gathered before the throne, and they're bringing their unique gifts and unique cultural expressions as something that is to be celebrated, while at the same time, we have gotten to that point where, where in Christ, human nature has been so transformed that those things that would try to move us away from the good, those, those areas of the Venn diagram that don't overlap. So let's take in our own culture, like our propensity for greed and exploitation. The fact, I mean, you brought this up, Patrick, you know, the fact that we could have, um, you know, let's say in the the early 2000s, we could have had Christians in deep uproar about Harry Potter books, but have no thought to whether or not our behaviors overseas in our militarism were just and in keeping with the kingdom of God. Like we just didn't see that. It was a blind spot in our, in our culture. So we get to that point where each of the cultures are bringing the best of their gifts and we are celebrating that. That's such a, that's such a beautiful picture. It's so optimistic. Yeah, it is. And uh, this might seem like a weird way to, you know, kind of end a podcast, but it's, that's the reason I'm proud to be an American. <laughs> like, like that's not right. Because I know one day I will come into the kingdom as a early 21st century yep. American from my time. And I hope that I can come with some of the glories of my culture and not its excesses, not its sin. None of that will yes. be there. And and that day I will be able to say, I am proud to be an American alongside my Nigerian brother, alongside my Chinese brother, alongside my Japanese sister. It doesn't matter. We will all be there and I will celebrate their gifts and they will celebrate my gifts because they all bring glory to the one who reigns. That, 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 that I am proud of. That I will hope for. Totally. I used to serve at a church. This was about a decade ago. Um, it was very, very culturally diverse. And we would do at the um, beginning of the year, we would do this service that um, was called Alabaster Sunday. And the idea behind it was each of the nations would bring the unique gifts in worship. And so I was the worship pastor at the time. And most Sundays was me on my acoustic guitar doing like my fake Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, those sorts of influences, Dave Matthews. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the Nigerians are having to tolerate it, and the Hmong people are having to tolerate it, and the Latinos are having to tolerate it. But on this Sunday, everybody brings their thing. And you know what's really cool was that like, when the Nigerians would worship, and they would bring their unique cultural worship, and it was everything was like, and the song, I just backed up and I stopped playing. I let them lead. And I could celebrate that while at the same time going like, I don't feel inferior with my acoustic guitar and four chords. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope that that's seen as a gift in the age to come that I can bring that and it'll be received as I think not it boring be. and mundane. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that's, that's an incredibly hopeful vision. Um, maybe one last question for you, Patrick, is like, all right, so now we're talking about a hopeful vision in way our human nature can be transformed with this this beautiful vision of what the way of Jesus leads to and keeping that before us it's it's very very exciting that picture is so exciting to me it's the best possible picture we can have and yet the the one facet of that sort of psychological and spiritual program programming still remains that we live in a culture that is programming us towards other ends could you maybe give some practical 
considerations for people that are going, okay, I still live in the culture war. Like it's all around me. I turn on the news. It's there. I turn on social media. It's there. Sadly, a lot of people go to church and they find it there. What sorts of practice practices would you encourage people to do? Or maybe they are an abstinence of other practices that you go, Hey, this will help shape you in this more Christ-like way with a continuous sense of excitement about what that future holds in Christ? I, I, I think those are fantastic questions. I would say a few things. Uh, some of you already mentioned. One is we need to live less of our life online. I think that the internet can be used for for great good. Uh, but for most of us, it, it just takes us into our limbic system and we're living out of fear and anger and frustration and we're agitated. And so we need breaks from social media. We need breaks from news media. That would be another area. If you're on the 24-hour news cycle or you constantly listen to it in the radio, you need to have some things in your life that actually calm your system down. You know, uh, you, you don't have to know every terrible thing that's happening in the world. That's actually not the definition of being an informed citizen. An informed citizen might know what's happening in their own community and care about what's happening outside of it, but make sure that your focus and your energy is being deployed where it actually can have the most effect. God has given you power and agency. And when we expend it again on Washington or international affairs or whatever it is, it's often misspent in the long run when God has you in a place. So I would say that would be the next thing, which is you need to deeply enmesh yourself in local middle institutions. So you should be invested at your church. You should find people in your church who maybe disagree with you politically and be intentional about taking them out for lunch or coffee and getting to know them and not having an argument, but asking, why do you hold the views that you hold? Where, where in your story does this perspective come from? And I promise you're going to learn something. But of equal importance is being involved in the other you know, increasingly shrinking middle institutions. You know, I'm I'm on my school school board for this reason, mm-hmm. right? I care about this. Yeah. Right? So I, or you can be on the PTO or the PTA at your kid's school. You can be the coach at your kid's games. Or if you don't have children, you know, you can find ways to serve in the local city council or you find a charity that you can be involved in. You've got to find ways to serve in these non-Christian institutional spaces because again, that's where you're going to build bridges with people who are different than you. And once you get to know them, a relationship just has this profound ability to tear down caricatures. So that's what I'm trying to say right now is yeah. you've got to enmesh yourself. And the other thing that happens when you enmesh yourself in these middle institutions is you will discover that your own levels of, of happiness tend to go up. Your levels of anger and anxiety tend to go down. It turns out that we were designed to be deeply enmeshed in community. Our highly online life rips us out of it. And we've got to be very intentional today about reinforcing, getting back inside of it. And so if you'll get inside of those things, it's going to be good for evangelism. It's going to be good for your own heart and life. It's going to be good for a million different reasons. But one thing that will happen is you will discover over time that you are becoming increasingly less tribal. And that is freeing because the less tribal you are, the more free you are to just say, I put Jesus first. I, I don't I don't have any access to grind right now. I don't have to worry about who I'm going to offend because there's only one. Per- I'm living for an audience of one right now, and that's going to be my king. And, and so th- th- that would be some of the practical advice I think I would give to anyone. Just pick one of those things and say, can I do that right now? Can I grab a lunch? Can I get involved in that institution? Can I, you know, create a, a space to have Sabbath from my social media or news media? Pick one of those things. And I think you'll discover it's really helpful. Those are great practices, Patrick. And I think we've only scratched the surface of some of them that you've highlighted in your book, as well as some of the other, um, I think really, uh, I, I just even think about the one instance where it was either you or your co-author who, when someone was very deeply upset about a sermon that he had preached, whether it was you or him, led with the question, uh, and I might be getting this wrong, what would you have liked me to know before I 
I preach that that you think I could have learned from. Yeah. To lead with humility in asking good questions. Oh man, there's just so many great nuggets in your book. So Patrick, um, you know, would you just tell us where people can get the book? Uh, I think if others that are listening, those that are listening right now are going, man, this stuff deeply resonates with me. Obviously you got the book. Where can they listen to the podcast? Just give us all the places where they might be able to find um, more content like this that can be of help to them. Yeah, so we're not very creative people. The book and the podcast share the same name, Truth Over Tribe. You can find the book at any major bookseller, Amazon, wherever else it will be there. Uh, same for a podcast, every major major podcast uh, supplier, you'll you'll be able to find Truth Over Tribe there. Uh, they are different. A lot of what we've been talking about is the theme of tribalism and how do we resist tribalism. And, and the book itself is, is not trying to uh, give you an orientation towards what you should believe in politics or how you should maybe even think about culture in general. Our podcast actually tends to lean a little more that direction. And our goal with the podcast is to bring on a wide array of thinkers, some of the best Christian and non-Christian thinkers, and have thoughtful discussions about major pressing cultural topics, but not from a partisan tribal stance. We try to keep the kingdom in the foreground. So that can shape our questions. It can shape our dialogue. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, I would recommend the, the podcast. It's a great place to go. And I love connecting with people on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is Patrick K. Miller underscore. Uh, I, I respond to DMs. I try to be uh, present. It's It's my one uh, social media space where I am actively engaged. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to chat with you there if you have any questions. That's great. Patrick, this has been a blast. I'm so glad uh, that social media for all its ills has somehow found a way of connecting us. I thank God's grace for that. Um, this has been such a joyful conversation. And I think uh, listeners are going to get a, a lot out of it. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's, it's a real pleasure. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners and viewers just like you. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, David, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P, Sarah R, Stephen H, and Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support over on Patreon. I can't do this work without you.